How did we do it? Oh, wow. So exciting. Uh, for those of you who went camping last weekend with us, have we recovered? Have we recovered from the morning elk children screeching? Have we? I still smell like campfire. Still. I don't know if that comes out. Does it? No amount of scrubbing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Um, for those of you who stayed behind uh, to catch up on homework and laundry, how'd that go? Yeah, pretty good. It was a wise decision. There's no shame in that. I mean, I'm just going to tell you what you missed. Horizontal, slanted, freezing rain. And about 18 Eagle Scout merit badges worth of fun. Just about, give or take. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, of course. Sort of, except for the rain part. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I forgot to introduce myself when I did that whole bill thing. Uh, obviously, that's not the most comfortable thing in the world for me to do. Um, I'm Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister for this thing called Reformed University Fellowship at New Mexico State. We're a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve this campus. And let me tell you a little bit about RUF at New Mexico State. We exist for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the bad kid, quote-unquote, and the good kid, quote-unquote, for the student who excels in everything, including running your own publicly traded, privately owned, investment-based firm out of the dorm rooms of Pinyon. That's one person, maybe. And the student who excels... And the student who excels at sleeping and really dominates the participation award in every single club and team that they join. So both of you guys are welcome, uh, the two people in the audience. In other words, <laughs> and finally, RUF exists for those who, put, who want to put Jesus on trial and those who want to try or stick with Jesus. So in other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. Uh, we hope that you feel welcomed. We hope to get to know you as RUF, and we hope that you get to know RUF. Um, what that means is if you've been coming for a while, uh, maybe introduce yourself to the person that you never know their name. That's why we have name tags, people. So you can just go and say, hey, how are you? Somebody, you know? That's, that's helpful. And those of you who are new, uh, we appreciate it. It takes a little bit of courage to come for the first time. We thank you for that. Uh, we hope that you feel extra welcomed. We're especially excited that you're coming here. And I'm just going to keep hitting things over and over again up here. Um, and I hope you enjoy your time with us and you feel welcome. That's sort of my takeaway in that. Let me do a couple of announcements. I got rid of the big one so that we didn't have like an hour-long time with me talking up here. Uh, hopefully this will be a little shorter than it would have been. Uh, is there a sign-up that we can pass around? Is that around somewhere? Niner. Is it, oh, wait, hold on. Yay! All right, so could you just pass that around? Um, this is a great way to get connected with RUF. Uh, you don't have to rock and stalk you. You don't have to do this. If you've already done it, please don't do it again. We have this new thing on numbers, like where you can put your number down. Um, that is not us being creepy. That's just if you want to get a mass text. We're just trying to figure that out still, whether we're going to do that. Um, we also have a Facebook group, NMSURUF. Feel free to join that. I'm really going to keep knocking this. Okay. Um, also, T-shirts. Only twelve dollars. We talked about this. I'm pretty sure the three-quarter length sleeve saved lives this past weekend. In <laughs> that freezing rain, that upper forearm—that's some people might have lost it. 
So, I'm just saying, you know, it pays off. Autumn's the time for the three-quarter league sleeve, let alone the rest of the seasons, because we want to sell this all the time. So, <laughs> summer's good, too, and so is winter. Uh, okay. Finally, uh, look at the, take a look at your bulletin, all the announcements in the back. Uh, we have some small groups going on, some Mario meals going on. Maybe take the next step and look at one of those. We're so glad you're here at RUF. We're so glad you're here at Large Group. Um, we're super excited about that. But we also want you to experience some of the community that is RUF. And those are two ways you can do that. Let me especially plug small groups because they're probably a little harder than just jump going to lunch. Uh, I think this is really where we make friendships. RUF believes that friendships are formed and, and enhanced uh, when we study scripture together. And furthermore, we also believe that in the midst of this community that there's something really important and valuable to investigating Jesus in the scriptures. Whether this is your first time ever doing that, we'd love you to come to small groups. Or it's your thousandth time investigating Jesus. You've been doing this since you can read. Uh, We'd also love you to do that. Jesus bears repeating, uh, as you'll hear over and over again in this sermon. So please join us in doing that. That's a, a little shameless plug. And shamelessness out. So let's talk about large group a little bit. That's what we're doing here. We've been walking through the I Am Statements of Jesus. We've been marching through the Gospel of John at a pretty big, quick rate. By the way, can I take a little time out here? Um, We're not obviously going every single verse in John. So it's a wonderful idea if you're looking for something to read, to maybe read along with us. Um, We're going through the I Am Statements of Jesus, so you can read around those or read before those. Um, It's just a a good opportunity. Anyway, um, we're looking at those passages, the I Am Statements, where Jesus describes who he is. He talks about, he describes himself to the people following him around the Middle East. And then for us, reading the Bible, the the account of that trip uh, and those disciples 2,000 years later. So, he's doing this in the Gospel of John, and he says things like, I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, um, I am the bread of life, and I am the resurrection and the life, and so on. So, we're really looking at those statements, and we're kind of unpacking the passages around them. Uh, therefore, our working title for this semester is I Am Defines Who I Am. Are we singing that in the shower yet? <laughs> it's memorable, right? I mean, do you wake up and just think, man, this is awesome. Touch your toes. I am who I, I am defines who I am. All right. So if you're not, we're going to keep saying it. So no, we'll say it anyway. Uh, what I'm really trying to capture here by this title in all seriousness is that knowing Jesus, the I am, changes the way that we are, changes who we are, changes the way that who, changes how we think about who we are, changes how we act and feel. He changes everything about us. And we are convinced in RUF that the best way to understand who Jesus is is to go to his scripture, to go to the words that he says in the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do. So, if you're not there already, open your Bible if you have one. John chapter 8. You can also use the Candy Dandy Blue Bulletin. Look on the inside right. We're going to look at the Gospel of John chapter 8. And as you're turning there, let me tell you where we've been the past few weeks. Okay? So, we started our intros with saying that when Jesus says, I am, he's actually saying, he's translating, uh, the, the Bible says a favor, he translated the word Yahweh, which means God. So when he says, I am the vine, he's saying, I am God who is like a vine. The second part of that introduction is that John the Baptist um, is teaching us that we have to have the right posture in our hearts in order to see Jesus as he really is. So we have to know, we have to confess that we aren't the Christ to see who Christ really is. 
Does that make sense? Are we tracking with that? Those are some basic follow-ups. We talked about I am the Messiah. We spent two weeks, I am the bread of life. And tonight we're looking in John 8 at I am the light of the world. So I know you guys were all waiting for this. Would you stand for the reading of scripture? We're looking at John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Uh, If you've been here for the last couple weeks, this is much more manageable. Okay, so we're not doing like 40 verses or something. So John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20 is what we're looking at. Again, Jesus spoke to them, the crowd gathered for the Feast of the Tabernacles or the booths. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you, you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is, not, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who, he, who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Then the crowd said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Show up, where is he? Bring him forward. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Friends, these are the words of the Lord. These are the words of God. They're more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they're sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I ask that you would settle our hearts, that you settle my heart, that you would help us to see you, Jesus, in the midst of this passage, and all of its challenge, and all of its beauty, and all of its comfort, um, but all of its brutal honesty as well. I pray, Father, that you would move our hands and our feet and our hearts and our minds, and that you uh, would not leave us alone with this passage, that you'd open up our ears to hear it, that you'd open up our hearts to believe it, you'd open up our mouths to speak it even, Father. And I pray that you would change us through this passage. Uh, your spirit can do this work. You promised to do this with your word. And we rely on that promise. We lean into that promise. I, in fact, plead that promise right now, Father, that you would work, you would fill us with your spirit, and that you would, you would not leave us the same tonight. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. question that we're going to start with tonight. Are we afraid of the dark? Are you and I afraid of the dark? I'm not asking you that really personal question whether you sleep in the nightlight or not. Okay? I'm not asking whether there are like monsters under your bed or you think there are. Maybe. I'm asking you a kind of deeper question. I'm asking you, um, I'm talking about those private moments that we all experience. Those moments when we're awake in the middle of the night and we know that we're supposed to be asleep. And our minds start spinning with anxiety. We start doubting, then blaming our choices, our life, our everything. It feels like the dark is rising. The dark is winning. We feel like the dark is overcoming. We feel like we're overcome by darkness in those moments, don't we? 
And then it's dawn. All of a sudden it's morning, and we see our dad shirtless in the kitchen. Right? That's disgusting. Um, Or we see our roommate in their flannel PJs. And we think, what was that all about last night? All that anxiety. That was just silliness. That was just indigestion. Right? Heartburn. And maybe I'm just talking about my camping experience. Anyway, so... That's a story for Villagen, I suppose. Anyway, so... But here's my question. What if these private, sleepless moments that we all experience from time to time, what if they have some honesty to them? What if they're peeling back a layer of self-defense that we're not comfortable going there with? Let me take for another example another kind of private and personal honest moment. An intimate conversation. We're among friends. We've let our social guard down and we really just start to talk. We start talking about what life feels like, what it feels like on a daily basis to be us, to be me, to be you. And we just start having that kind of conversation. I know it's rare, but it does happen, right? When we just feel comfortable with somebody. And then we start sharing our private concerns, our private hopes, our private fears, and our private loves, right? We overhear that kind of conversation, um, that intimate conversation in a novel that most of you probably never heard of called 1Q84. Okay, 1Q84. It's an international bestseller from last year, but it's okay. We're not international. We're in America. Okay, so <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about the novel. Okay, it comes from, it's, it's, we overhear this conversation that happens between two Japanese women, halfway across the world, really. And they begin to talk about love. The main character, you're going to have to bear with the names, it is Japanese after all. Aomame, okay? Aomame says this as they start to talk about love. She says, if you can love someone with your whole heart, even one person, then there's salvation in life. It's a pretty deep statement. If you can love someone with your whole heart, even one person, then there's salvation in life. And then her conversation partner, Ayumi, replies, I was in love with somebody once. The first boy I ever had sex with. He was three years older than me, but he dumped me for somebody else right away. I kind of went wild after that. It was really, really hard on me. And then there's a silent portion where they're just sitting there, clicking their silverware, drinking their wine. And Ayumi concludes, life is pretty dark. This world has a serious shortage A serious shortage of both logic and kindness. Life is pretty dark. This world has a serious shortage of both logic and kindness. And then thinking about Aomi's earlier Aomame, Aomame's earlier comment about love, Ayumi says this, If you can love someone with your whole heart, life is not hell. At least, though it might be kind of dark. Is that what you're saying, Aomame? These conversations become, uh, are, is actually a very important conversation in the novel. And it's something that the author, Haruki Murakami, goes back to over and over and over again in his story. For him, the world's darkness and hope for love's light is not just silly. It's not just silly. It's honest. It's honest to see the darkness. It's honest to hope for light. Murakami describes the light and the darkness this way. She was hoping to be accepted and embraced unconditionally. To be comforted by someone, if only for a moment. 
And they were equally lonely, he says again, searching desperately for something, something that, they, that would accept them unconditionally and hold them close. Do you understand that this person has no grid for what we're about to talk about? This person is just describing the Japanese human condition that happens to be our human condition as well. But you don't really have to appreciate Japanese contemporary fiction okay, to appreciate Murakami's point. We are born and live in a darkness of conditional love. A darkness of conditional love. We fall in love only to get dumped. Dad and mom disappoint us. Friends betray us. The darkness in many of our relationships feels like a marketplace. Do you ever have this sensation that you feel like your relationships are a marketplace? A relationship marketplace that has a serious shortage of logic and kindness. We've got to constantly sell ourselves to other people. We have to bring something to the relationship table in order to be liked. Does anyone else feel that franticness? To loosely quote a a commentator in Paul Metzger, he says it this way, the market is always changing. Therefore, our identities are always changing. In a free market system, a product has no value unless people buy it. In a free market system, a product has no value unless people buy it. And you have no value unless people buy you. Most of us, most of the time, live with this kind of relationship insecurity. This kind of conditional love. We give conditional love and we take it when we can get it. That's where we are. It's a darkness that hums behind the scenes. It's a darkness that sometimes wakes us up in the middle of the night. It's a darkness within us and outside of us. But, think again what Murakami does with that darkness. He also says that we have this longing, this built-in desire for light, that is for unconditional love. We can get at this love by loving someone unconditionally, right? But we can't do that, we can't love someone with our whole hearts until we're loved unconditionally, until we're loved with with someone else's whole heart. And that is exactly what Jesus is promising in this passage in verse 12. He's saying, I am the light of the world. Do we get that? I am the light of the world. He gives those who follow him the light of life. The light of life is unconditional love. Jesus loves, embraces, accepts, and comforts us with his whole heart. Again, in the words of Metzger, Jesus knows who he is, knows where he comes from, and knows where he's going. His identity is fixed and eternal so he can rescue us from changing values of relationship marketplaces. In our passage, John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20, we see this truth when Jesus tells us this. I am the unconditional love in a world that loves conditionally. I am the unconditional love in a world that loves conditionally. Therefore, follow me by loving me and others unconditionally. Okay, that's complicated. Let me break it down. I am the unconditional love in a world that is full of conditional love. Therefore, we follow Jesus by loving him and loving other people 
in the same way, unconditionally. Okay? Just like John 6, this passage, that, that point of the passage that we just saw, is broken down, is couched in an aggressive Q&A session. It's a pushy crowd getting at, pushing Jesus into a corner. Jesus lingers in Jerusalem in the temple courtyards after the Feast of Booths, at the very end of it, and, toward, and maybe even after. And he explains the meaning of that festival of lights by saying, I am the light of the world. That, that festival of lights is pointing to me. And then he also gives us a wonderful and challenging offer. And we see it in our text. Let me break it down for you. First, in, verses 12, in verse 12, we see the powerful statement of Jesus. I am the light of the world. And then he says a powerful direction. Come follow me. I'm the light of the world. Come follow me. Second, verses 13 through 18, Jesus debates about who has the right to judge what. So verses 13 through 18, who has the right to judge what? And then third, and finally, verses 19 through 20, Jesus points, that the, points out that the darkness is still present. Or in other words, Jesus explains his unconditional love. Verse 12, Jesus fights for our unconditional love. Verses 13 through 18, Jesus points out our need for unconditional love. Verses 19 through 20. So let me give you that short summary again. Okay? Jesus explains his unconditional love, verse 12. He fights for our unconditional love, verses 13 through 18. And he points out our need for unconditional love, and verses 19 through 20. Okay, so we're breaking it down into three points. But let's start with the first point, Jesus' explanation for his unconditional love. His light, verse 12. Let me just reread verse 12 so we can get the full flavor of it. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does Jesus mean by this light metaphor? Why does Jesus compare himself to a megawatt light bulb? What is he doing there? What's his point? In John's Gospel, Jesus says a lot about light. And I'm going to give you like a quick run through. Very quick. Light overcomes the darkness. It wins. John 1. It exposes good and bad deeds. John 3. It helps us avoid moral stumbles. John 11. It provides direction so that we know where we're going. John 12. And light finally comes to save us in the darkness. That is, it allows us to hear Jesus' words and do them. We're freed by Jesus to finally and fully love. Again, John chapter 12. Look, I know that's a list, and that might be like a little overwhelming to us to take in, uh, but I think it's also going to help us, and we're going to circle back to it as we try to apply what verse 12 has to do with our lives. So just take that in, kind of soak it in, and we'll move back. Let me get to the next question, though. What does Jesus mean by light of life? And really, actually, this is like what the whole introduction was about. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the introduction describing what the light of life was. The light of life is unconditional love in a world that conditionally loves. It's a megawatt sun in the middle of a pitch black night. That's the light of love. That's the, that's the, excuse, yeah, that's the light of love. Or the light of life, excuse me. Okay? The light of life is also what John calls over and over and over again eternal life. 
As I said last week, eternal life is eternal satisfaction that begins here and now as we become united with Christ by faith. It's a way of describing the rest that we feel and the truth that we know. The rest that we feel and the truth that we know as we experience being united in faith with Jesus. That's what eternal life is. Does that make sense? Are we tracking with that? And we get eternal life, the light of life, okay, when we follow Jesus. In the words of our passage, we, when we walk in the light and not in the darkness, that's how we get it. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to walk in the light? Have you guys thought, thought about this question? We're going to go there. For Jesus, it's a matter both of the mind and of actions. Do you realize that most people try to separate the two? You're either a hands and feet person or a mind person. Okay? We're all like that. But Jesus is saying you need to do both. We don't just go through the motions of our actions only. We don't just do that. Jesus is more than a bunch of rules. He's more than avoiding that or doing this. And we don't just live with Jesus in our heads. We have to live as if Jesus were true. And he asks us to do concrete things in this world with our friends, with our family, with strangers in his name. And the more we follow Jesus in our minds, the more we say fight against our doubts, for instance. Okay? The more we actually are able to follow Jesus with our hands and our feet. That is to love people that are on the outside. That is to love people who haven't made the cut in society. That is to love the people that Jesus identifies the most with. And of course, the opposite is true. The more we love Jesus with our hands and our feet, the more the paralyzing doubts within us actually lose their power over us. I'm going to use a physics metaphor, which is always dangerous. It's a feedback loop, right? There's a gaining of power the more we buy into it. The more we follow Jesus unconditionally, the more we follow him unconditionally with everything, the more that everything wants to follow him unconditionally. There's a sense of a momentum here. There's a sense in which following Jesus is a whole person thing. It's a loving with our whole heart and everything we've got. And that changes our whole heart and everything we've got. But some of us are still not satisfied. I mean, look, what does it mean to follow Jesus? This is the Jesus that says he's the light of the world. Said, what does that have to do with... I mean, I could have gotten that from another passage. I could have followed Jesus that way from another passage. What does it mean to follow Jesus as the light of the world? I think it means this. I think it means reflecting to the world the light that Jesus shines on us. Reflecting to the world with the light that Jesus shines on us. It looks like Matthew 5, verses 16, 14 through 16. It means being lights in the world and letting that light shine before others. But what does that mean? Spiritually and physically overcoming darkness. Spiritually and physically revealing good and bad. Spiritually and physically providing moral direction and encouragement to other people. Spiritually and physically offering rescue from darkness. This is the call of God's people. Those who follow Jesus, the light of the world. But this calling requires wisdom, doesn't it? It requires love to give love to other people. 
How many times have we seen people blind other people with Jesus' light? Seemingly every week I hear or see well-meaning Christians selfishly shove their light into other people's faces in the name of a notch on a belt, to get it over with out of guilt, or to advance the Christian discipleship triangle, the latter, so to speak. But I don't think that's necessarily what this passage is about. Listen to the way that Jack Hayford encourages us and cautions us in calling as lights in the darkness. The call of the church is to be a cultural catalyst. That is, to be salt and light. There are dangers, though. Light is annoying if it glares in your face. In fact, you try to push it away. But if you let the warm glow of light show, people will come to it. I don't think Jesus called us to glare light a foot from their eyes with a million candle power spotlight. He called us to be warm. He called us to the warm glow of his love. God has not called me to be morally indignant. He has called me to be spiritually vibrant. Do we get this? Do we get what that means? I know this is shocking some of your worlds. Okay? But do you understand that Jesus' light is attractive? That it's attractive that people actually maybe want to come to it? Do we also get that the light given in our own strength can be awfully annoying? That we certainly we need to run towards and not away from those people in need. We need to run towards and not away from the failing, the directionless, and the overwhelmed. But we also need to move towards those people gently and with patience. With Jesus' warm glow, not our self-righteous spotlight. Not surprisingly, given our feeling right now, Jesus' statement that he is the light of the world meets deep suspicion in verse 13. He is told that he is bearing witness about himself, and his witness isn't true. In other words, the crowd is saying, look, Jesus, prove that you are an unconditional love incarnate. Give some references. Provide some evidence to the, that you are this way. How does Jesus respond to this cry? How does he respond to the crowd's need for evidence, for references, for job recommendations? What does he say? First, he tells them they're wrong. (laughs) Because they don't even know he's from heaven. They think he's from Galilee. And they keep saying over and over again in the Gospel of John, how can a prophet be from Galilee? You just want to scream, he's born in Bethlehem. Okay, just get over yourselves. And that's what he's saying. You, how are the ignorant to judge what is right and wrong? That's his point in verse 14. Second, the second way that Jesus refutes them, is he says, God the Father and himself, also God, those are his two references. Those are his two witnesses. Jesus is saying, I'm a witness, and God the Father who sent me is a witness. Therefore, I fulfilled your law. Third, the third way, and most important way, verses 15 through 16, Jesus tells them, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. And this is really important, and it's very difficult, so try to pay attention on this one. It's very difficult. Jesus is not some piece of data that needs other data to be true. Jesus, God incarnate, is how data 
is proven true or untrue. Jesus is not something that we hold up to the light. Jesus is the light that we hold things up to. Finally, Jesus is not evidence in need of a verdict. He is the verdict by which we examine the evidence. Are we tracking with this? Maybe this is all still pretty deep and confusing, so let me back up a little bit, okay? Look at verse 15 with me. Every time we read the word judge, we think it means that, he's, that Jesus is talking about heaven and hell. Okay, That's just sort of how many of us were brought up. But in this case, look at the context. Jesus is not talking about salvation judgment. He's not talking about that. Instead, he's talking about judging whether something is true or not. Whether his statement in verse 12, that I am the light of the world, whether that is true or not. Do you get this? Let me try to explain it. In verse 15, Jesus tells the religious leaders of his days, the Pharisees, I don't judge what is true according to the flesh. That is, I don't judge what is true according to human standards. After all, how can human standards judge what's divine? But Jesus says in verse 16, what is divine can test human standards. That is, human beings can't put God on trial. They can't. That's like my two-year-olds putting me on trial for not giving them milk whenever they want it. Do you get that? It's even more than that, actually. But God can put human beings and their methods of trial on trial. That's what he's saying in these verses. Some of you are still probably confused. That's okay. Um, let's, let's see if C.S. Lewis can fix this philosophical mess for us. Okay? He usually is pretty good at that, right? He has this essay, and it's one of my favorite quotes, by the way. And I, I, I get really, I have this cringe inside sometimes when we cut off the rest of it. Like, we just read the last line of it, and I go, that's great, but that's like missing the whole point. So I'm going to try to give you some context. The essay is called, Is Theology Poetry? It's kind of an obscure essay by C.S. Lewis. And he writes that, he starts talking about dreaming and waking. And he says, how do I know whether I'm dreaming or waking? Which is true? Which is real? Is, it that, is the dream life real or is it the waking life that's real? How do I tell? And he decides that he knows that the waking life is real, is true, because it can account for the dreaming life. Whereas the dreaming life can't account for the waking life. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? And so he says this. For the same reason, I'm certain that in passing from scientific points of view to the theological, I pass from dreaming to waking. He's saying, dreaming is science, and waking is theology. Okay? Because Christian theology can fit in science, it can fit in art, it can fit in morality, and it can fit even sub-Christian religions. But the scientific point of view cannot fit any of these things. It can't even fit science itself. And then he says this famous quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because I see everything by it. What is he saying there? What does he mean? I'm going to unpack it for you. 
Lewis means Christian theology, an unconditional divine standard, is like being awake. It's big enough and it's real enough to account for science. But science, a conditional human standard, is like being asleep. It's like dreaming. It's not big enough. It's not real enough to account for Christianity. So let me put it this way. I'm not saying, by the way, that science is false. Just so you know. I'm saying that science fits into Christianity, but science can't account for Christianity at all. Okay, that's what Lewis is saying as well. And this is the implication. So belief in Jesus, belief in Christianity, is not just something that we believe is true. It's not just like, yes, I affirm that. I mentally check that box. What Lewis is saying, what Jesus is saying in this passage is that Jesus Christ, that belief in Jesus is the basis and the instrument by which we believe everything else is true. We don't just believe that Jesus, we don't just believe that Jesus is true. By believing in Jesus, we know that everything else is true that is true. He's the criteria. He's the system. He's not a piece of data. He's not a proof text. Okay. Maybe some of you are lost. That's okay. We can talk about it in Village Inn. Lots to talk about in Village Inn. Verse 19, okay? Final part, final point of this sermon. The crowd, mostly made up of religious people, mostly made up of Pharisees, reacts to Jesus' three-point theological defense poorly. Okay? They ask him this. Where's your father at? Where's your father? They still want witnesses. They still want evidence. They're still treating Jesus as new data that must fit into an old system. When Jesus is saying, I came, I am a new system. That you change, that, that interprets all data. So Jesus answers them, and this is my paraphrase, you wouldn't know God if he stood right before you. And I'm standing right before you. And I'm God. That's what he's saying in verse 19. Jesus is pointing out that the world is still saturated with darkness. It's still saturated with conditions. Even as he, Jesus, has entered this world with unconditional love. The darkness inside of us and all around of us can sometimes feel so thick, can't it? It can feel so thick, it's uncomfortable to sit through introductions about life, relationships as a marketplace. It's hard to see Jesus in those moments, let alone follow him. And this could lead us to ask, where's God? Where's God in all of this darkness? Where is he? Where is he in the middle of the night when I wake up with anxiety? Where is he when I talk about my life and I realize I don't really know what I'm talking about? This is the very same question that we overhear in another novel, Love Feast. Between a professor, Virgil Roebuck, and a a charlatan preacher named Leo Bebb. A preacher that's borderline, um, borderline, he should have been kicked out of the ministry long ago. Okay? What begins as a confrontation quickly turns into a private and honest moment of intimacy where both of the people talking let down their social guard and they begin unguarded, honest talk. I love those moments. The professor, Virgil Roebuck, rattles off a history, a history of suffering and evil, 
all the darkness in the world that ever was, is, and will be. And then he accuses Bev, that sort of preacher, of being right in the thick of it. But instead of using the words darkness, it, or even sin, these two, these two characters use an even more offensive word. And if I haven't lost you yet and you're not mad at me yet, you're going to be mad at me now. They use the word shit. Okay? Yes, I just said the S word. I just quoted it. Technically. Safe. Safe. Look, I'm going to ask your permission. I'm going to ask your permission, uh, your kindness, to use this word a few more times as a quote uh, from the story. Uh, from this, and even using it as makeshift pulpit. I know that's really awkward and uncomfortable for some of you. But I think calling the darkness shit gets at the offensive stink, the offensive rot, the offensive messiness and dirtiness of sin. And so I hope our desire to be better understanding of what is grace and sin, what is light and darkness, will overcome our twinned reaction against cussing. That's for a purpose. Okay? It's not for just giggles. Okay? So back to the story. We've got a story. Roebuck has just given this list, this litany of the suffering and the atrocities and the evils of humankind and human history. And he's put Bev right in the middle of it. He says, Bev, you don't even have the strength to actually commit these things. You're just cheering them on. Okay? And listen to what Bev tells him. What he tells Roebuck. He says, you can't take anything people have ever done in the world and you can take all those things. And the best you can say about that is that maybe it's one part honest and well-meant and nine other parts shit. If I close my eyelid and all the shit there is in the world, I've still got to face up to the shit there is inside of me because I'm full of it too. And so Roebuck asked the question that we all ask. When the darkness feels so heavy that we don't want to sit here, when it feels so hard to know what to do, what the, the Pharisees ask in verse 19, he asked this to Beb. If the world's mostly shit, Beb, where's God? Where's God? And Beb replies in this beautiful way. So beautiful that it might make all this cursing worth it. I'll tell you about shit, Roebuck. Take it from an expert. There are two main things about it. One thing is the stink and the corruption and the waste. The other thing is that if you don't pile it up too thick in any one place... It makes the seeds grow. Roebuck, God's where the seeds are growing. God's where there's something no bigger than the head of a pen starting to inch up out of the stink and the dark of shit towards the light of day. Roebuck, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son down here into the shit with the rest of us so that something green could happen. Something small and green and hopeful. I guess what Bev was trying to say to Roebuck was this. When we get honest enough to look into the darkness, to look at all the conditions that make love hard to give and hard to receive, when we feel all the thick darkness inside of us and outside of us, it's important not to stop there. It's important not to stop with the darkness. We must also look for the small and the green and the hopeful things that are blossoming all around us. 
We must also look for the light of the world that shines even all, in all of this stink and darkness. For the warmth of His unconditional love, that's what we feel towards. In the words of Robert Murray McShane, and I'm just going to paraphrase this, for every one time that we look at our sin, let's look ten times at the cross of Jesus. For every one time we look at our sin, let's look ten times at the cross of Jesus. Friends, this is how we know that God is with us, that he's shining in the midst of the darkness. We know it by looking at the cross. We know it because we can begin to love people unconditionally through the power of that cross. God is shining in all of that stink, in all of that darkness. He says there's no place on earth so stinky and so dark that I can't come there and flip it upside down and make green things grow. So the question before us is, how are we going to live? Are we going to live as if that were true? Are we going to think like that's true? Are we going to let the light come into the darkness and overcome it? Would you pray with me? Father, um, hard passage. <laughs> Maybe just every passage is hard. Um, I pray that you would be with our hearts as we think um, some of the challenging things that we've heard. Uh, I pray, Father, that you'd extend grace to me and extend grace to the people here, that you'd help us to look to your scriptures to understand who Jesus is. Um, I pray, Father, that we would look around the world and we'd see grace blooming, light shining, but we'd also be honest enough to see that, that light and those blooms are in the midst of dark stinkiness. We ask for that knowledge. We ask for that grace. We ask that for every one time we look at our sin, we look ten times at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.